And while they leave, I just want to remind uh, you all, most of you probably familiar at this point since we've done it uh, pretty frequently, but there are baskets here at the end of the line as you go through for communion. Uh, on Communion Sundays, it's been an old tradition in churches that they would collect money for the poor on the days of communion. So the money that we collect in those baskets specifically goes to meet the needs of the poor in Wilmington. It would be helpful for you this morning to have your Bibles open to the passage that we read. We are working our way through the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet to the nation of Judah around 600 B.C., If you remember in chapter 1, we remember he was called as a youth, likely as young as a teenager. We know Jeremiah from chapter 1 was given a difficult task. Chapter 1 verse 17 reads this way, But you, Jeremiah, dress yourself for work. Stand up and say to them everything that I command you. Do not be dismayed by them. Behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, a bronze wall against the whole land, against the kings, its officials, its priests, and its people. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, declares the Lord to deliver you. God commissioned Jeremiah to call the people of Judah to return to the ancient paths, the paths of obedience and fidelity to God alone. But Jeremiah's congregation was stubborn. They didn't want to listen. They preferred following their own paths versus following God's paths. And so as we have read through these first ten chapters or so, we've read across several unflattering descriptions that Jeremiah has used for the people, like, you are a donkey in heat, you're a fool, you're an idolater, you are like a senseless child, you are a prostitute, just to name a few. When we read the temple sermon, and beginning in chapter 8, we saw that Jeremiah didn't even bother going into the temple to deliver his sermon. Instead, he just stood at the front of the, of the temple gate. And as the people in one big festival came rushing by, the preacher, instead of being inside in the pulpit, was outside at the door, and he was speaking on behalf of God. And as they rushed in, he looked at the people and spoke on behalf of God, and he said, The Lord sees you. He sees what you're doing all week long. He sees that you're living this double life. Out in the world, you're living one way, and then you you come rushing in here thinking that you can live just for an hour before me, and you'll be safe. And Jeremiah is commissioned to tell those people, you're not safe. You're in massive danger. As you might imagine, Jeremiah didn't win the superlative for most popular in Judah. If Jeremiah had had a Facebook account, he would have had no friends. 
If he had been a network, he would have been just a network of one. Nobody else out there wanting to communicate with Jeremiah. And it's because the people of Judah were not just rejecting God's message. They were also rejecting God's messenger. In chapter 11, what we uncover is that people are devising a scheme to end Jeremiah's life. 11 verse 19, Jeremiah says about himself, I was like a gentle lamb being led to the slaughter. I didn't know it was against me that they were devising these schemes. They were saying, let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living. And so it's at this particular point that we begin to see Jeremiah the prophet begin to crack. The weight of being God's mouthpiece to a people who don't want to listen. The the strain of living a, a singular life devoted to the Lord in a culture of duplicity. The the confusion of seeing his faithfulness be rewarded with suffering while he's watching treacherous people thrive. And and Jeremiah just can't take the pressure anymore when when he finds out that his own friends and family are now plotting to take his life. And Jeremiah cracks. And this is a passage... It's one of several you'll find in the book of Jeremiah called a a confession or a complaint or a lament. It's it's a very important gift that Jeremiah gives us that he, he opens up his heart and we get to peer in and see what does it really look like? What does it really feel like to live a singularly devoted life to the Lord in a world that's fallen and falling after, following after all other kinds of gods? And so I want us to focus our attention on these three things and what, consider what we might learn by looking at them. First, I want to look at Jeremiah's rejection. In chapter 11, then Jeremiah's complaint, verses 1 through 4 in chapter 12, and just the first two verses of God's response, verse 5, 6. Jeremiah has been rejected. He comes before the Lord and he gives a complaint or a lament. And then God gives a response. So let's look at this together. Chapter 11, verse 18 The Lord made it known to me. And then I knew. If the Lord makes it known to you, you know. So it's kind of repetitive. The Lord made it known to me and I knew. And then you showed me their deeds. They were trying to to cut me off from the land of the living. They were trying to put me to death. And it's apparent that Jeremiah doesn't anticipate the, the hostility that he's going to encounter by living in this world. He's going to proclaim the Word of God. He's going to live the Word of God out in his life. And he just doesn't quite anticipate the kind of hostility that's going to bring on his own life. And what completely takes the wind out of Jeremiah's sails 
is the discovery that it's his own family that wants him dead. Look at verse 21. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth. Sound familiar, Anathoth? That's found in chapter 1, and it tells you that's Jeremiah's hometown. 12, verse 6. Even your brothers and the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. They are in full cry against you, Jeremiah. Don't believe them. Though they speak friendly words to you, do not believe them. Jeremiah is about to get stabbed in the back by his own family. I mean, he knew that his message has upset the religious leadership. He was already aware of that. When, when he looks at the prophets and he looks at the priests and he looks at the elders and he comes in and he looks at these men who are esteemed and he said, you're a bunch of liars and windbags. He understood that that was going to be an upsetting message to the leaders in the church. But he's getting word back now that his message, his identity with God, is now upsetting the folks back home. So much so that they want to take his own life. You know, you know, it's one thing to receive criticism from somebody who's distant relationally from you. I mean, that's not easy. But it's a lot more difficult to receive criticism Criticism from somebody in your family. This is kind of a goofy example, but when I was a kid, I played baseball. And I really didn't like baseball. And the reason I didn't like baseball is I was terrified of getting hit by the ball. I just thought, it's coming, it's coming really fast, it's a really hard object. And I've been hit by one of these before, and it hurts. And so I just assumed not be around that activity. But my parents wanted me to be, said, look, you play football, you beat up on other guys, so how hard can this be? Well, so my baseball routine was to close my eyes. I don't know why I thought closing my eyes would help me not get hit by the baseball, but if it ever came near my glove, this is what I would do. I just sort of hope that sort of my, my will to get it into the glove would get it there. If I was standing in the batter's box, as the guy was winding up, I was backing up out of the box. And all of my coaches, when I was in Little League, uh, in, in Fort Sill, Oklahoma, at an Army base, were all Army sergeants. And the other people on my team were their kids. And so you can imagine after a couple of plays, you know, you come back to the dugout and you don't get a real encouraging sort of rah-rah from the bench. But I couldn't tell you now, as a 45-year-old man, I couldn't tell you now any one of their particular comments. I just remember sort of the flavor of their comments. But I can remember, like it was yesterday, the one comment that my mother made. That hurt me. We were walking back to the car, and I was playing third base during the game, and it was a tight game, and somebody hit one of the outfield, and the play was going to be at third. I just hated it. I just 
knew was happening. And so I did my routine. I got on the base. I stuck my glove up in the air. I closed my eyes. And it just didn't hit the glove. And they won the game. And so we're walking back to the car. And she, she looked at me and she said, Paul, tonight you were an embarrassment. I mean, you can remember when it comes from your own family, a comment like that. And my mother was a wonderful person. But, and she wasn't even rejecting me. She, she was just rejecting my inability to play baseball. And Jeremiah comes back to his hometown, and they're not just saying, Jeremiah, we don't like your message. They're saying, Jeremiah, we don't like you anymore. And I wonder if any of you have felt that sting of rejection by somebody in your own family. If you have, you just get a little sense of what Jeremiah is feeling, the the pressure that he's under. One commentator says this, For any man of Israel, rejection by his society was a great grief. But it was the price Jeremiah was called on to pay for being true to his call from Yahweh. The town and the family that provided security for Jeremiah turned against him. He was alone, cut off from those who he grew up with, unable to count on their support. Now, this point of application may seem terribly basic, but, but I think Jeremiah somehow didn't get the message in the beginning of chapter 1, which was clear, but he needed to be reminded here that if you're going to follow Jesus, there's going to be a cost. If you're really going to follow Christ, there is going to be a cost. In different cultures, and different times, the cost is different. But for every person willing to follow after Christ, there's a cost. Jesus couldn't have said it any clearer than he did in John 15. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as, it, as one of its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember these words. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. In other words, if you think you can love God and live for God and at the same time be popular in the world with people who do not want to follow, off, follow after God, then you're terribly mistaken. I want to say that one more time, and I want to say it particularly looking at students who are in middle school and high school. If you think You can love God and live for God 
and at the same time be popular amongst the people in your world who do not love God and who do not want to follow after God, you are terribly mistaken. That's not possible. And the reason I want to say it specifically to the middle school and high school students is because in my 15 years of doing Young Life, I ran across repeatedly kids who were actively engaged in their youth group. But when I saw them, when I, when I saw them out in the campus, when I saw them at games, when I heard their language, when I heard from everybody else what was happening at the party, Besides the the t-shirt that said ski retreat and the little gold cross on the necklace, you couldn't tell the youth group kids any different from any other kid that was out there. And why, why was that? I understood that having been a high school student, but why, why was that happening? Why does that happen? It's because people are thirsty. For applause from the world. And they're willing to sacrifice even their faith. A middle school student, a high school student is terrified of rejection from the crowd. Terrified. And so they find themselves in places, they find themselves doing things. They find themselves agreeing to things that are completely contrary to what they say they believe, but they're thirsting for applause from the world. And if you are thirsting for applause from this world, you will not be able to successfully live and follow after God. That is not possible. Jeremiah was called as a teenager to stand alone. This morning we're going to take communion. And a number of you high school students, middle school students, you're going to come up and take communion. And what you're doing when you come up is you're openly proclaiming your identity with Jesus Christ. You're trying as publicly as you can to say, I'm the real Christian. I'm the real deal. I'm not perfect. I'm, I'm still working on things. But, but when you see me generally out on a Friday night, when you see me at my friend's house, when you hear me speak when no other adult is around, you're going to find me lining up behind Christ. That's what you're saying when you're coming up front. And I want to ask you before you walk up front, are you ready to stand alone? It's not easy to stand alone. And I would say it's particularly challenging when the people you oppose seem to be having so much more fun and success than you. And that's what Jeremiah finds himself. He, he's trying to live for the Lord, and he's opposing people who aren't living for the Lord, but it appears that they're having all the fun. 
And so Jeremiah moves to his complaint, chapter 12, verse 1. And this is where I really appreciate Jeremiah's honesty. Here's a summary of these first four verses. Jeremiah complains to God. God, my identity with you, my good behavior, you know what it's brought me? Isolation. And, and all the other people who are exhibiting terribly, terrible behavior, they seem to be getting rewarded. They seem to be having all the friends. They seem to be having all the fun. Or maybe said a different way, God, I'm your servant, and my life stinks. But, but all these two-faced people, they're having a party. Or maybe this, God, I don't get you. Why do the wicked prosper? And you see, you just see Jeremiah's tension here in verse 1. Righteous are you, O Lord. He's, he's just putting, trying to put these things together. And, and I know you've thought this way. He's looking at God and he's saying, here's one thing I know about you, God. You are good. That's the first platform Jeremiah wants to build and stand on. And then he says this, verse 3. And, and you have planted the wicked. And this is what they're doing. They're taking root. They're growing. They're producing fruit. Their, their success is not an accident. You're in control of their prosperity. God, you are sovereign. I know you are good and I know you are sovereign. And so Jeremiah says, but, but what I don't understand then is why they're prospering. If I really believe both of those things, then why is it the wicked people are prospering God? You ever registered this complaint with God? If you have, you're in good company. Job, Asaph, the writer of many of the Psalms, particularly Psalm 73, Habakkuk, Malachi, Jeremiah, all wrestling with this idea of God's goodness and God's sovereignty, but yet when they look out on the world, the people who are treacherous, they're thriving. And the people who are trying to live obedient lives to God, they are, their life just stinks. In the Bible, God responds to these questions really in more than one way. If you read these different passages, He tries to answer these men who have these same questions in, in a little bit different forms. One response God gives is in verse 22 from chapter 11. He tells Jeremiah, Behold, I, I will punish them. But when you read on, you get the idea that Jeremiah doesn't really appreciate God's timing. Well, yeah, I know in the end maybe you are, but what about right now? How about getting some punishment out right now, God? That would really help me. And look, if you need some help, I'll just point to the people and you start, you know, sending down the lightning bolts because I know which ones are treacherous. 
That, that would make me feel a lot better for some of your judgment to just come down. It doesn't need to be all, just some of it right now. And let's, how about him? And how about her? You ever feel that way? Verse 3, chapter 12. Pull them out like sheep for slaughter. You, you get a sense of Jeremiah's passion in this passage. And God gives another response, a very curious one. I wouldn't say always a very comforting one. Verse 5. He hears, God hears, Jeremiah's like a lawyer, he's bringing a case. He's bringing his complaint. Here's God's response. Jeremiah, if you've raced with men on foot, and they have wearied you, How will you compete with horses? You hear what he's saying? Jeremiah, you think it's tough now? I mean, it's really going to get tough later. And you're about ready to fold the case up right now. This is just like a foot race. But pretty soon I'm going to put you in the stall next to Big Brown and I'm going to open up the gates and I'm going to see who wins. It's really going to come down on you, Jeremiah, later. And right now, when this little stuff is happening, you're about ready to cave in. Is that comforting? I mean, do you feel like, okay, yeah, all right. Looking forward to that horse race. Can't wait for that. Boy, that should be fun. Jeremiah comes to God to complain about other people and he discovers that God has some complaints about Jeremiah. You read the passage and God doesn't seem to show the least bit of concern about Jeremiah's sense of timing. He's not asking Jeremiah if Jeremiah agrees with God's sense of ethics. He doesn't acknowledge Jeremiah's threat on his life doesn't seem to be particularly bothersome to God. But what does seem bothersome to God is that Jeremiah is just about ready to cave in. He's about ready to, to lose his faith in what God is saying is like the third string opposition. We, we haven't even gotten to the varsity level, but you're about ready to lose to the third string. And I think what Jeremiah learns is something very important about God and something that you and I need to learn about God. And that's this. It's not all that critical to God whether we get him. But what's massively critical is that you understand that He has got you. It's not critical to God that you and I or Jeremiah understand all the ways He's at work in the world. God doesn't come down and answer all of those questions for us. That's not for us to know right now. But what he does want us to do is to trust in him. To say, 
God, I completely trust in you. No matter the the chaos that I'm in, no matter the horse race that I'm in, I'm not going to win this race on my own. I'm going to win it because I am completely and passionately and supremely devoted to you alone. No matter what's happening in the world, I am trusting in the God who's running the whole world. That's what he's really concerned about for Jeremiah. And I think that's what he's really concerned about for you and I. You know, the same thing happens in Mark chapter 4. And you're familiar with the story. Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's given them all this teaching. And he says, guys, let's go to the other side. I'm directing you to go to the other side. And halfway across, what do they encounter? This huge storm. So the disciples are thinking, sure looks like God has directed us right in to the storm. And the answer is, yes, he has. And so they're trying their best to try to get out of the storm. And when it looks like the boat's going to be swamped, their lives are going to be lost, they look around for Jesus, and where's Jesus? And they shake Jesus, and this is what they say, Do you not care about our lives? And Jesus gets up, and he calms the storm, and he doesn't say anything about caring about their life, which is very disturbing. But do you remember what he says? Where is your faith? That's what this whole thing is about. Do you supremely trust in me? Disciples, you think this is hard. Wait till we get to the other side and a naked man in chains out of the tombs come running for you. Well, then we'll really start the horse race. And you're going to fall apart and I'm in the boat. I am with you. And it doesn't say this in the Bible, but I just imagine Jesus going back, getting his pillow, laying back down, closing his eyes, and saying something like this. If this has worn you guys out, wait until the horse race. At a Young Life camp called Frontier Ranch, it's in Colorado, you go rappelling. You have to kind of crawl up these rocks and you get fairly high up. And they have these uh, two or three stations you can sort of rappel off of. And you're standing, I don't know, five or six feet away from the face of the cliff, and you get all clipped up, and then they have you stand in a certain spot, maybe about a foot away from, I don't remember, 80-foot drop. And you have, you know, the ropes, like you're rappelling. And they say, okay, let's take a few steps backwards. You know, and you realize, okay, my knees now just turn to jelly. I can't move. And you, you know, take these steps back and you get to the very edge and at one of the places, if the rock doesn't go down, it goes in. And they said, well, you know, you need to lean all the way back and then jump. And so I'm sitting there, you know, saying, boy, guys, this is going to be fun. You know, I can't wait till we do this. Thinking, I hope I'm going to be alive at the end. You know, I You know what? I can't see the bottom. You you know, I can't even see the next step. I mean, 
And you know what the person says probably a hundred times? I got you. I, I have got you. You know what, Mr. Phillips? If you completely let go of the rope, I got you. I can't see the bottom. I'm in a free fall. I've got you. I can't see my next step. I've got you. I'm I'm crashing up against these rocks and I'm getting all skinned up. I've got you. No matter what excuse you come up with, that person says, I have you. And that's what Jeremiah needs to learn. That no matter what's happening in this world, God wants to come back and remind Jeremiah of his call. Remember, Jeremiah, you're going to be a fortified city. Nobody's going to like you. You'll have no friends on your Facebook. But you know what? It doesn't matter because I've got you. Some of you all here need to hear that. Because you may feel like my life, Paul, if you just understood it, it feels like it's in a free fall. And God wants me to tell you, He's got you. Hey, I'm standing alone and my life stinks. God's got you. I'm getting all scraped up by the circumstances of my world. God wants me to say to you, where you are is no accident. He's got you. I can't see my next step. I've got you. You There are a lot of similarities in this particular passage between Jeremiah and Jesus. Jeremiah was at the middle of a scheme, just like Jesus was, to put him to death. Jeremiah, just like Jesus, was rejected by all the religious leadership. Jeremiah, just like Jesus, was rejected by his closest friends and his family. Jeremiah, just like Jesus, felt like they were a lamb being led to slaughter. But one way that Jeremiah and Jesus were not alike was when Jeremiah heard that and he began to crack. He said to God, Would you slaughter them? When Jesus saw that happening, he said, I'll be slaughtered. I see, God, that everyone is turning against us. And what they really deserve is your judgment. But on the cross, he looked and he saw you and he said, I've got you. I've got you. I've got your sins. You're not going to have to pay for that. I've got that sin. 
You will not have to pay me back because I've paid for that. I've got that. See, I have got you. Now, you, come and get me. God has done everything. He is the Passover lamb. So that we might eternally be with God the Father Almighty. That Jesus has us. And he communicates back to God, God, I'd like for you to treat them like a son or a daughter. Let's pray together. Lord, as we celebrate communion this morning, I know there are people here who feel like I'm following you and my life stinks and the people who aren't are thriving. I know people who are here are building a case. They're keeping a little ledger. They're angry at you. And they're about ready to let it go and say, here's what you need to answer to me for, God. There are people who are getting scraped up. There are people who are in a free fall. There are people who are being asked to step off into a place that they can't see. And I pray that through the, the life and, and peeking into the heart of Jeremiah, that we would see... That it doesn't matter if we get everything that you're doing down here in our life and with our life. That what really matters is that you've got us. You, you had Jeremiah. You called him and said, Jeremiah, I have got you. And you have called many of these people and you've said the same thing. I have you. Help us, Lord. To be willing to stand alone. I pray this moment would be a very near moment between you and your people. As we come and we are at the table with you. In Jesus' name, amen.